watching online perhaps for the first time, or maybe this is the first time you've been back with us in service for a while because of COVID, we want to, to say welcome to you, God bless you, and we are grateful to have you here with us. We are continuing our journey through the book of the Apostle, excuse me, the book of Acts, where we look at the life of the Apostles and what was going on in the first century church, the historical book, if you will, of what was taking place during that first century church after Jesus' resurrection and the actions that led up for the next several decades of what was going on in the life of the body of Christ. And I want to invite you to find your place in Acts chapter 20. One is where we're going to be at today. Verses 10 through 16 will be what I call our anchor text, where we're really going to focus a lot of our effort in understanding this issue. And that's where we get our sermon title, A Life Worth Dying For. And we're going to look at what Paul was saying when he pleaded with his brothers in Christ there to not break his heart by grieving, but rather to support what he had to go on. And we're going to take a look at that passage as he was making his way to Jerusalem to suffer for the cross and to ultimately give his life by church tradition by beheading in Rome. So we're going to take a look at that, but I want to share with you an image of the city of Tyre. This is off the coast of Lebanon. Now, if you ever wanted to go on a nice vacation spot, this is a pretty good one as well. Of course, you might not want to hang out in Lebanon right now, but if you did, this would be a pretty cool place to go. This is the city of Tyre, and I want to share with you why this image is important and what's going on around the background of the scripture of where we're, we find ourselves today. For those of you that are just jumping in with us, on this study, I want to give you a little background of chapter 20 that led up to Paul and the apostles leaving the church in Ephesus and what went on when they landed in Tyre at the beginning of chapter 21 and how this all fits together in the grander scheme of what we're going to see today. How do we live a life that is worth dying for? The background of this message in chapter 20 helps us understand the context and what was happening. Paul knew that his departure for Rome was a calling from God. He would not disregard that despite the warnings and the fear that we're going to see take place, not only there in Ephesus, but now in Tyre and the other locations where he's going to as he's fellowshipping with the apostles, with the brothers, with those in Christ. Paul gave his personal testimony in chapter 20 that he had not burdened anyone with the ministry of God. He'd worked with his own hands as a, as a worker with fine leather and, and building crafts. Some would say he was a tent maker, but a leather worker. He counted his life as no worth to himself, but he spent all that he had for the kingdom of God. In chapter 20, he also declared his final departure and how those he loved there in Ephesus, when they bowed down to kiss his cheek and depart, they were weeping because they knew he would never see their face again. And that's what he proclaimed to them. He had finished speaking with the Ephesian elders, warning them to watch out for the wolves that would rise up from amongst the flock. He knew that the body of Christ, as a shepherd, one role was to protect the body from those that would teach false doctrine, those that would draw men after themselves to go do their own thing and de deny that Christ was who he said he was. They wept together and embraced as Paul left them and his companions made their way to Kos, the beginning of chapter 21. I'd invite you to look at the very beginning of chapter 21, and I want to read that very briefly as we stay on this image. As you continue to look at Tyre, know that that's where we're at right now. This would have been the place that that ship would have landed, that Paul would have gotten off on, and where he would have spent the next several days before he made his journey to Jerusalem. Let me share with you what's going on in verses 1 through 7 very quickly to give you the background understanding that leads us to our primary text today in verse 10. Picking up in verse 1 of chapter 1, and when we had parted from them and set sail, we came straight to Kos, and then next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing the Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in the sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for, for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days were ended, we departed and went on our way, and, and they all, with their wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and returned home. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy and were greeted by the brothers and stayed with them for one more day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him, and he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So that's what's going on as Paul lands in this city and then he moves on from there. And I want to give you the brief rundown so you understand if you are 
if you've gotten notes, if you take notes, try to, try to keep up with me. I'm going to share all this verbally. You're not going to see any of this on the screen. But again, just background context so that you understand when we get to verse 10, what was taking place and what Paul was dealing with as he was willing to sacrifice all he knew for the gospel. In verses 1 through 3, they journey from Ephesus to Kos to Rhodes to Patara, from Patara to Phoenicia to Tyre, what you're seeing right now in that picture. In verse 4, we notice that the Scripture tells us that he sought out disciples. Now, we don't know much about the church in Tyre or who it was established, but we can presume that because Paul had stayed there seven days, he had met new folks, he continued to evangelize, continued to share the gospel, and stayed there longer than any other place in this verse here until he gets to Jerusalem. Why? Because there was new fellowship that was going on. He stayed seven days. In verse 4, we see also that the Spirit was warning Paul of what awaited him in Jerusalem. Now, if you read that text as a Bible student, as you're looking through this, you may scratch your head and say, well, if the Spirit was warning all the brothers at Tyre, then why would Paul continue to go on to Jerusalem if he knew through the Spirit that something bad was going to happen there? Shouldn't Paul have listened? Well, I want to share with you that one theologian by the name of Bruce Tannerhill suggests the following to help you and I understand what this meant. Tanner Hill suggests that most likely through the Spirit refers to the revelation of the Holy Spirit of the dangers that laid ahead for Paul. Some seen this as the Spirit directing, urging not to go in conflict with the revelation already given to Paul about the need for him to visit Jerusalem. We saw that in chapter 19 and verse 21. And to suffer for the process. Luke does not treat this as a different message requiring discernment by the church. In three successive scenes, the Spirit speaks about the dangers that are awaiting Paul in Jerusalem. And his resolve is strengthened on every occasion. In this, the briefest reference, it is the best to conclude that the Spirit's revelation was the same. The Lord was consistently revealing and progressively showing Paul what might follow, what was going to follow. His friends became aware of the implications, and they were moved by the Spirit and their love for him to urge him not to go. There's no contradiction when we read this. The Spirit did not prohibit Paul from going to Jerusalem through their urging, but continued to warn him of the dangers. In verses 5 and 6, we see a new relationship formed with the disciples there, as I stated previously. In verses 7 and 8, they arrive at Ptolemy. Now they've left this beautiful coastline of Tyre, and they stayed one more day with what they call the brothers in verses 7 and 8. Isn't it interesting how there's a familiar relationship, a family, if you will, with other brothers and sisters in Christ. When you look around in this place here, while we may not be from birth, same mothers, same fathers, but we in Christ are the family. You and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you don't like me now, you're going to have to put up with me in heaven. Amen? I mean, that's the reality of what we have as one family, the household of God, the oikos theos. We are the family of God, the children of God. We're going to live together. Now, I know some of y'all are saying, yeah, but pastor, you're going to have your sanctified body and you'll be better in heaven. Amen. I would agree with you, right? We're one family. He calls them brothers there as they leave Caesarea. And in verse 8, they enter the house of Philip the Evangelist. Many of you have read Acts chapter 6 and verses 1 through 7 as these seven men were set apart, full of the wisdom, Holy Spirit, prayerful men that were there to help serve the body of Christ to meet a specific need at that time. Often they're referred to as the first deacons, even though the word diakonos, diakoneo, diakonia, the verbs and the usage for servant are never given to us in Acts chapter 1 through 7, or chapter 6 verses 1 through 7, but they were there to meet a specific need of serving the body of Christ. It's this Philip that Paul is now staying with in verse 8. He had four daughters. Now it's interesting when we go to the end of verse 8 that those daughters were acknowledged for being those who would prophesy, but yet it's not they who prophesy, but we're going to see a moment when we get to our anchor text. It's another man by the name of Agabus. So if you have your Bible, follow with me in Acts chapter 21. I've given you the background and I've laid the foundation if you're just joining us for what was going on. And we're going to examine verses 10 through 16 together. And then we're going to apply it to what do we do with this in our Christian life today? How can we learn and take from what Paul and his companions did, what the early church showed us, and how can we apply this to understand how we can live a life worth dying for? Amen? Let's go to the text. Picking up in verse 10, Acts chapter 21, the Bible says the following, While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us... He took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, 
This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason, a Cyprus, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Let's pray together. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reading of your scripture. We thank you for all that it in, in, entails. And, Father, I pray now that we will faithfully handle the text and apply it in our life in a way that produces the fruit that you have shared with us, that you will know them by their fruit. Father, we thank you for the fruitfulness of the ministry of Paul and the ministry of Luke and those early disciples that housed the brothers, that provided the meals for the brothers in Christ as they traveled, that provided the transportation, that were faithful despite the persecution. Father, we pray now that you'd help us to apply this to our daily life. Father, it's my prayer if there's one here that doesn't know you, may they understand that you're who died for their life. Father, we thank you for the cross of Calvary. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to share with you a brief outline. It's only three points. You all might get out of here before the Methodist Church, right? Three points that's going to go on in our message I want to share with you. Number one, we're going to look at this aspect. How do we understand the principles of discerning godly conviction? That's obviously what was going on here in this text. How do we swim counter-comfortable? And I'll explain that when we get to it. And then lastly, we see the closing of this text with making ready. And how do we apply that to make ready in our own daily life? Number one, I want to share with you that we must discern godly convictions. Notice in verses 10 through 11, there was a bunch of discussion about not going, urging. Matter of fact, the pronoun we is used by the author, Luke, here to mean not only himself, but all those who were with him came to Paul, and they were convincing Paul, please don't go. Why? Because in verses 10 and 11, we see a man by the name of Agabus. Now, we don't know much about Agabus. We don't know much at all about his history, his background, but we do know in Acts chapter 11, he was there amongst the apostles, there amongst the disciples, and he was prophesying about a great famine that would take place in Jerusalem. So we see him in Acts chapter 11 prophesying, and now again, Agabus leaves Judea, he comes south, and he now lands where the apostles are, and Agabus comes into this meeting with Paul, and he begins to prophesy. And in verse 11, he says this again, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this says the Holy Spirit, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now we see first, this wasn't a belt like I'm got, I have on right now, right? Notice it's on his last notch, but that's another story, right? This would have been a belt that would have been a cloth belt, would have been wrapped around probably several times. It would have been one that didn't have holes in it, but he could tie things up. He could probably carry money in it. He could carry other things. It was something of utility. And Agabus, now you can imagine the scene as Paul is there amongst the brothers as they're resting and Agabus comes before him and says, thus says the Lord. And he's got a prophecy and he takes off Paul's belt and he uses it and he wraps it around. Now, this wasn't the first time we see a prophet living out an example. In the Old Testament, several times over and over, prophets would demonstrate through their own actions the prophecy that was going to be revealed. And now here Agabus is carrying on with the same thing we've already seen in Scripture as he's acting out now this prophecy by binding the Apostle Paul's hands with this thing we call a belt, his hands, his feet. And he declares to them how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of of the Gentiles. How do we have godly discernment? What do you do with that? Imagine if someone came to you or I and bound us with a belt. Now, I know some of y'all will do, right? Remember, love a brother. But imagine if someone came to you and prophesied like that. How do we, how do we know whether or not this is true, how this is from God? You ever heard someone say, God told me something, and they tell it to you, and the moment they get it out of their mouth, you know that's not from God, right? You ever have that, you ever have that experience? Or am I the only one? And then I've had several occasions. I had folks years ago before I became a pastor and before I was in full-time ministry. I remember being in McDonald's parking lot with my wife traveling through Warsaw, North Carolina. And I remember the, the location coming through the drive-thru. 
And this old gentleman walks through the parking lot, comes up to my car window, right? And we all know what we're thinking. He's panhandling. He wants some money or something else. And okay, well, I'll listen to what he needs. And I roll down my window, and he looks at me and says, God's called you to preach his word. You be faithful. And he walked away. Folks, that's deep, isn't it? What do we do with that? Well, need to say it was a quiet ride to my parents' house for the next hour or so, right? I'm thinking, okay, God, is that you? Are you speaking through this? Or did you use that man to, to affirm what I'm struggling with, this call to doing what you called me to, this following you in life? Ephesians 5 and 8 through 10, Paul reminds us about this issue. He says, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you're in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. You see, there's a level of discernment that we have to apply in doing the things that God has called us to. Sometimes we think God's called us to things that may not be from God. And then other times you've got a man pointing at you saying, God's called you to proclaim his gospel. Be faithful. What, are you, what do I do with that? Needless to say, much time spent in prayer to discern it, right? As Paul told the church in Ephesus, that we're to discern what pleases God. So I want to share with you how to discern godly convictions in our life. How do we know whether what Agabus was saying, what all the apostles and the other disciples that were there with him were saying was true about not going to Jerusalem, but yet Paul goes anyway? What discernment was he applying here? So number one, I want to share with you, Scripture declares it. Scripture is going to declare the things of God that we can discern and know are from God. Scripture is not going to contradict, contradict itself. Scripture is going to be very clear. If you ever struggle with something... Because you know Scripture says one thing, but you feel led to the other. Just know you're wrong. Scripture's right. Amen? Here's another quick way. I was taught as a young boy by a wise teacher after I was already in suspension. That's another story. He says, listen, let me just tell you how to stay out of trouble, young man. If you have to ask yourself whether I should do it or not, the answer is already no. Right? Because how often do we have to ask ourselves whether I should or shouldn't? If it's right, we just do it, don't we? But if we have to ask ourselves, should I, generally, you already know you probably shouldn't, right? A good way to apply some teenage discernment in our life. But here the scripture declares it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Now, if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write down the passages of scripture that I'm giving you there. Now, on that slide, I don't have this one, so you're going to have to capture that one. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 through 21. Paul says this to the church in Thessalonica, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Here, let me put it in a simpler term. Swallow the meat, spit out the bones. Anybody ever heard that? When somebody's giving you something, you know not all of it's right. You, you hold on to what's good, you throw away what's bad. Keep what's useful to you. Well, Scripture tells us to do the same thing in our life. Not to despise prophecy, but to test everything and hold fast to what it's telling us. How does Paul apply this in his own life? In Acts 9.16, Jesus, as he met Paul on the road to Damascus, you know what Jesus says to Paul? I will show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. Scripture told him that this would be coming down the road. So when Paul's reflecting and hearing Agabus and what's going to happen, he's hearing Luke and the others that were with him, we were urging him not to go. Paul's like, wait a minute, what do I do with it? How do I discern the voices in my head? Well... Lord, I know what you told me, so I'm going to go with that, because I was there when it happened. The other voices are affirming, could be affirming, could not be affirming. In Acts chapter 21, verses 10 through 11, Agabus is telling him what was going to happen. It corresponded with the very thing Jesus told him. Folks, if we use Scripture to understand and discern God's will for our life, we can never go wrong. Scripture would never have us do something that was contradictory to what God's perfect will is for our life. And if our life is in alignment with Scripture, let me give you another little secret. You'll sleep good tonight. God don't care what you do. If your life's in alignment with the Scriptures and you're living a life that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ, He doesn't care whether you teach here or you teach there. He doesn't care if you pump gas at this place or you stock shelves at this place. If your life is glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ, use whatever vehicle and place your planet to glorify the Lord. It doesn't have to be in one place or another. Paul tells us in another part of the text, if you were called to the gospel in that vocation, stay where you're at and be faithful in the gospel. Unless you know through discernment he's called you to something else. 
well, pastor, you know, I work for this such and such company, and you know, they're not a God-honoring company. Well, there you go. Number one, conviction is what that company, does it, what it stands for, what it does. Is it contradictory to the Word of God? Yes. Then leave. Find a new job and watch how quickly God opens the door. That leads us to the second part. Scripture declares it. Others affirm it. The body of Christ, others affirm it. Let me share with you a verse of Scripture, 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Amen? We're to test it. Others may affirm it. But what we've got to understand is that you and I help see characteristics. When I counsel young pastors now or young men that are thinking they're called to the ministry, one of the characteristics in a man who's called to ministry is the body of Christ will affirm they recognize those gifts in that man. A life that is blameless, good reputation, an able teacher, other characteristics that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, excuse me, 1 through 7. Those things are present, and guess what? The body of Christ affirms that, yet yes, we agree. We see those same things in that person. Have you ever seen the ability from someone in your class who what you think would probably be a good teacher? Because they're always injecting, they're always adding flavor to the conversation that's healthy and edifying the body of Christ, and then all of a sudden your leadership pulls that person aside and says, would you be an assistant Sunday school teacher? Well, I never thought about that. All right, we've already affirmed that you have some natural giftings for that because we're seeing it lived out in your life. Others affirm it. We, the body of Christ, can affirm it. And I want to give you an illustration. I don't have a picture for this. But have you ever seen the Olympics when they get on the stand and they're presenting the medals and the person who won the gold medal, have you ever seen the picture where they're biting down on the gold medal? You know why they're doing that? I found this absolutely incredible. The gold medal is made up of 92.5% silver, 1.3% gold. Now imagine that. You see, what happens when you bite down on gold is the old California gold rush gold miners knew. You ever seen that old man? He was missing most of his teeth. He's biting down on a gold nugget. Because the teeth, when you bite down on pure gold, it will leave an imprint in the gold. That's why the, gold, the Olympic medalists, when they get the gold, they're biting down on it. They want to know, is it real gold or not? And come to find out, no, it's not. You may have thought you won gold, but you got 1% gold, 93% silver, right? That don't pay. I'd rather have all gold, amen? We want to affirm it. We want to test it, the Scripture tells us. Test it to know it's really the authentic thing. Because, folks, there's a lot of veneered Christianity going on in our culture today. There's a lot of things and a lot of people and a lot of places that are sprinkling just enough Jesus on something to make us think we're okay and our salvation secure. They're sprinkling just enough Jesus on it to make us think that it's holy and religious. But I would argue when we scratch the surface, we find MDF below the surface. We thought it was walnut on the outside. We thought it was the real thing. But when we scratch the surface, we realize the core is rotten. The core is not what it's supposed to be. And thirdly, God validates it. Again, I shared with you scripture in Acts 9.16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Scripture shows and tells us and validates God's plan for us. God reminds us through the Apostle Paul to the Galatian church in Galatians 6, 7 through 10. It says, do not be seed. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will reap flesh, will, excuse me, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will weep from the Spirit eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are, are of the household of God. You see, when we look to discern what God wants for our life, we can Rest assured, Scripture declares what He wants for us. The body of Christ, the others, the ecclesia, the assembly of the disciples, the apostles, and for you and I, the assembly of the disciples together, we affirm that, and God's Word validates it. And I've just given you just a couple texts, but His entire Word validates the discernment we need. Now, I want to share an image with you. If you're getting hungry, we're not having fish for lunch, but many of you recognize what's happening here as, as we look at the salmon, now, if you understand the life of the salmon, when the salmon's born, he swims downstream from the freshwaters out into the ocean, some up to 6,000 miles away, and he spends a few years swimming around, and then he makes his way back upstream, fighting the current the whole way along, 
so that he can do what he by instinct and nature knows to do, which is return to his home waters so that he can spawn, she can spawn, lay their eggs, they can fertilize, and the cycle of life will continue. And that salmon has to swim back upstream against the current. Now, I thought I would show you the picture of the bear standing there, but I cropped him out because that fish is fixing to be lunch for that bear, right? Sometimes that happens, doesn't it? We say, man, we're swimming upstream and there's a bear waiting for me, right? Might be, right? But I want to share with you what do we do with this? We must swim in the body of Christ as a disciple of Jesus. We must swim, and I didn't say countercultural, countercomfortable. We must swim countercomfortable. We know that our life in Christ is not going to be one of just easiness, blessing after blessing, three chariots in my driveway, a 10,000 square foot house, and a swimming pool, and all that wonderful stuff. That's not what Scripture tells us we can prepare ourselves for. Jesus said, if they've persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Right? We understood that. Matter of fact, isn't it interesting? that Jesus would proclaim his own death, burial, resurrection before he went to Jerusalem, saying he must go to do these things. Much like the Apostle Paul is now with Agabus, Luke, and the others that are there saying, no, stop breaking my heart. I'm going to Jerusalem. We must swim counter-comfortable in our daily life to be in alignment with the gospel. Chapter 21, verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not only to be imprisoned, excuse me, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Let me share with you four ways that we can swim against the current of comfort in our daily life. Number one, we got to know our destination. You see, that salmon knew where it was going. How it knew and how it could remember how to get back there, I can't give you a, a bit of information on that. But I know this, Paul knew where he was going. Amen? Paul knew the destination that was ahead of him, and there was nothing that was going to stop him from getting there. Nothing at all. Let me share with you Jesus' same sentiment in Mark chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus, Peter, Cephas. Upon this rock I will build my church, Jesus tells Cephas later on. But here, Peter is rebuking the Messiah, the Christ, saying, no, 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 you got this wrong. But Jesus is like, no, get behind me, Satan. I know what I need to do. Paul is saying the same thing to those that were there weeping with him. Why are you breaking my heart? I know what I've got to do. I've already discerned the will of God. God's already spoken to me. You can affirm what I've got to do, but this has to be done. And I'm willing to be imprisoned, and I'm ready to die, if necessary, for the gospel. Jesus, like Jesus, Paul resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And his submission to the will of God had a powerful impact on those who were with him. Although suffering was an integral part of the ministry to which Paul was called, it's reasonable to ask why he had to suffer precisely as he did in these final chapters. We don't know exactly what God's plan was and how the finale ended for the Apostle Paul, but we do know that this portion of Scripture for you and I transitions us and marks the final, the beginning of the final scene, if you will, the final play. How many of y'all like watching series, movie series? You get through season one, you're excited about season two, season three gets you right there on the edge, and then you got to wait two years to see season four come out. And you're like, ah. You get disappointed. You walk around the house depressed for about a day or two, right? Because you just want to see it finish. Here we've got a transition into the final season of what's going to take place in Paul's life. That final season where he's going to be in Jerusalem. He's going to get delivered up by the Jews to the Romans, Roman authorities. And then he's going to make his way through a long procession all the way to Rome. Where the story's going to end abruptly in chapter 28. It never really concludes and finishes for whatever the reason God ordained that to be. But what we have now is the final scene where Paul is telling those who are with him, the disciples, stop breaking my heart. 
for I know what I've got to do. Paul knew his destination. Do you know yours? Do you know where you're going in life? Well, here's one thing I can be sure of. We can know. We can know our salvation. We can know that we have been redeemed by God, that we are a child of God. We can confess our sins before God, repent, and accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And folks, that marks the beginning of that journey of following God, to know where we are going. We place our trust and faith in Christ Jesus Marshall Howard would link the words of Agabus with one of that of Jesus crucified at his betrayal, his crucifixion, his death. Marshall states the form of Agabus's wordings is no doubt meant to bring out more clearly the parallelism between the fates of Jesus and Paul. It's interesting, isn't it, in that scripture that Jesus is told by Paul, no, 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 you can't do this. Paul rebukes him. That leads me to the second point. We need to reduce the white noise that's around us. What's white noise? You ever listen to a vinyl record player? My, life, my wife loves those things, right? And in the background, you hear the pops and the, the clicks and all the stuff going on in the background. And, and you know now in our modern age of recording, that stuff sounds kind of out of place, doesn't it? It's like, man, that's, that's a bad copy. It's like something we bootlegged and tried to give for free, right? It's a bad copy of something. Isn't it interesting that in our own life, we have white noise around us too? And often it could be a family member, could be friends at school, could be co-workers, could be people that have no spiritual understanding whatsoever, that have no faith in Jesus Christ, that are rebuking you and telling you you're a fool for listening to that preacher or to reading that Bible or to adhering to that scripture. You're an idiot. You ought to know better. Isn't it interesting? There's so much white noise going on. Often it's even from our own family members that don't understand why we're committed to following this path of walking as a disciple of Jesus. Family members, friends. And here's the most dangerous one, I think, of all the white noise that we have in our society today. The white noise of cheap grace counterparts, counterfeits. Cheap grace counterfeits. What do I mean by that? The Christians that are claiming to be Christ followers, but we don't live our life any different proclaiming the name of Jesus than we did before we proclaimed the name of Jesus. Folks, that cannot happen. If you are a Christ follower, God is going to take away the sin from your life. He's going to burden you with such a conviction about those things and such a discernment for it that those sins are going to leave and no longer be a part of your life. Now hear me closely. I didn't say you can't have friends that are non-Christians. I encourage all of you to have friends that you are trying to share the gospel with that may not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They may be living a life of sin that you're injecting some wisdom and some light to, to reach them and rescue them, much like we have been rescued from our own darkness. But folks, when we say we are Christ's followers, but yet we remain in our sin, I believe one letter in the New Testament says, you make God out to be a liar if you claim that there is no sin in you. Right? We're to walk in light, to be children of light. Cheap grace counterfeits meaning those who walk around where the gospel has cost them nothing. I mean, that's a sobering question, isn't it? What does the gospel cost me? What am I sacrificing? What am I giving? What am I, what am I not doing that my flesh wants because of the gospel? What am I sacrificing for what Jesus has done for me? And don't you think for a minute the Bible says, come as you are, God loves everybody, he doesn't care about none of that. You better believe he does. You better believe the gospel cost him everything. And when we become followers of Christ, we are to die to our old self so that the new man can live. Folks, we have to do that. We cannot be cheap grace counterfeit Christians who the gospel costs you and I nothing as we live in it. I would argue we may be in jeopardy ourselves of hearing those words, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I knew you not. Folks, there's some that Jesus said are going to hear that when they say, but Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do all these things? Jesus said, there will be many on that day that will say, Lord, Lord, that will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Folks, that's, sob that's sobering, isn't it? Man, how can we be assured of our faith? Well, we can't live like cheap grace. We've got to get rid of the white noise in our life to include whatever perpetual sin we may be still struggling with. 
and seek to follow Christ. Know our destination, reduce the white noise, and thirdly, we've got to rely upon Scripture. Scripture is the foundation. Now, when I turn to my table of contents, I do that every now and then, I forget where something's at in here, and i got to go to my table of contents, and I look at the very beginning, and you know what, lo and behold, I didn't find in here? I couldn't find it to save my life. I couldn't find second opinions. I couldn't. It wasn't in here. Now, I've heard it a lot, quoted, but it's not in there. See, when we rely on Scripture, there's some promises that we can take away from it. Let me share a couple of my favorite promises about relying on Scripture, the benefit of what it has as we swim countercomfortable. Psalm 1, 1 through 6, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his, on his law he meditates day and night. Isn't that beautiful? He goes on to say, he's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit and season, and its leaf does not wither. And all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Isn't it good just to rely upon Scripture? Man, I don't know about y'all, but I want to be planted by the waters of life. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 may be a familiar passage for you. The proverb tells us this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. What a beautiful understanding. How do we discern? How do we swim against the comfort culture? We've got to rely upon Scripture. And it tells us the way. But lastly, I want to share with you the fourth way, and that's to ready yourself through service. Ready yourself. Here's something I know for a fact. The person who struggles the least with understanding the will of God is this person. It's the person that's so busy doing the work of God that the will of God comes natural because you're in it. You're saturated by it. You can't escape it. And through that doing, God makes minor course corrections to put you, as Jim Collins would say, on the right seat on the bus of God. You see, when we're doing the work of God, the will of God comes natural because we're consumed with serving Him. Jesus was consumed with serving Him as well on that night in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke twenty-two forty-two, And He says the following, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus didn't just sit back in the upper room reclining at the table comfortable with his cup of wine and his food that was there eating the pasha, the Passover meal, and say, you know what? We're pretty good here. Let's just stay here for a while longer. Christ was serving the Father through his actions. And he walked out of there. The disciples were singing a hymn, and they walked through the Garden of Gethsemane. And out in the agony of prayer, Jesus knew what was coming. And he's praying, not my will, but your will be done. And then what did he do? He didn't even stop there. He gets betrayed in the garden. He now goes through that process that we celebrated last week of being crucified. Carrying his own cross, mind you, till he no longer could. And a man helped him carry it the rest of the way. Going to Calvary's cross, laying out his hands, not being wrestled to the ground by the guards. Jesus knew the will of the Father by doing the will. And I would argue when we do that as well, we can take comfort in understanding what Paul says to the church in Philippians, the Philippian church in 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, ooh, we don't like that word, do we? That, that word's thing. You know, my wife wouldn't even say obeyed it at our wedding vows. Now, we were heathens when we got married, but that's all right. She still loves me now, right? She's seen the light. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You ever wonder why we struggle with what's going on in our spiritual life when we sit idle and we're not doing the very things God's called us to do? We're not in the game, so to speak. We're sitting on a bench. But yet we've got players missing on the field. And we wonder why we're discontent, grumbling, maybe a little bitter, 
little unhappy with the way things are going in our church life, here's what I'll tell you. Get in the game. Saddle up. Put your gear on. Because God didn't call us to sit on the sidelines, church. He said, get in the game. How do we know God's will? By serving God. Let me share this comment with you. God's will will not be obtained by wondering. Y'all follow me? But rather by working it out. His calling in our daily life through our service. We've got to seek opportunities to serve Him. I am the most miserable. I'll be honest with you. I am miserable when I'm not being used the way God has called me and designed me to be used for Him. When I'm not in a place, in a position where I can use my gifting, folks, I'm miserable to be around. You may know that already, right? Just kidding. But my wife knows it. She's seen it in the last couple of decades. When I'm not in the place where I can exercise the gift that God has created me for, I'm the most miserable in my spiritual life and my walk with Christ. But when I find that place where I can exercise that gift, when I'm serving God and I'm following His will for my life, I'm the most joyous and happy. I may get tired in it, but I never get tired of it. What a wonderful thing that we seek opportunities. What's an opportunity? Now, you may wonder, there's lots of opportunities. Which one do I take? Let me share with you a wonderful phrase by a coach. You may know his name, John Wooden. He would say this, when opportunity knocks, the time for preparation has passed. Think about that for a minute. Let that sink in. When opportunity knocks, the time to be prepared for it is over. You see, we've got to get prepared before the opportunity comes. Here's how John Maxwell would summarize what luck is. Now, we don't believe in luck as a Christian. We believe in the ordainness, the ordination, the, the, the uh, what's that word I'm looking for? Somebody help me out. Providence. The providence. There we go. The next Sunday school teacher, right? The providence of God. We believe in providence. Well, here's how John Maxwell would define this for his audience and leadership. He would say, luck is nothing more than preparation meeting opportunity. When the two collide, that's when good things happen. Wooden would say, when that opportunity knocks, if you haven't prepared, the boat has already sailed you by. We've got to be prepared before that opportunity comes. So I want to share with you, how do we see that happening here? Notice in verse 15 in the scripture, what's going on? Now this is a very simple verse, but I want to share with you point number three. We must make ready. Make ready. Now it's interesting, this word make ready. We find the word ready in the New Testament used some 90 times in the New Testament in the English Standard Version translation. 90 times the word ready is used. Did you know that in this, in this context, the way this word is used, it's only found one time in all 90 uses in the New Testament or in the overall use of the Bible. 39 times in the New Testament. This is the only place where this term, make ready, can be found. Notice the scripture in verse 15. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing to the house of Mason of Cyprus an early disciple with whom we should lodge. To make ready, to get ready, to become prepared or in condition for the immediate action, use, or progress. In the service members, we know this, and I served in the military for a couple of days, and I knew that before deployment, what did we always do? We ramped up our training. We increased the intensity of what we were doing. Our PT got harder. Our shooting got longer. All the different skills we had to practice got more difficult to the point where many of us said, I can't wait to deploy so I can take a break. Right? I mean, that was the reality of it. Put me in a village, drop me off in a mud hut, leave me alone so I can get some sleep. Because we trained so hard up to the moment to be ready. The preparation that goes into it. Then when we end up going through it, it's less difficult when we have to do the actual task because we're so well prepared and trained for it. Let me give you three ways that we see we can live ready and prepare. How did Paul do it? I'm going to give you three ways that we can assume we know that they were doing these three. The three R's of living ready in our life. How do we live ready? Number one, live repentant. Live repentant. What does this mean, repentant? When I define repentant, Webster defines it as this. It is an expressive repentance. Expressive meaning it's something we are constantly doing. Yes, I'm saved. Yes, I'm thankful for what Christ has done on the cross. But no, I'm never satisfied that I'm right with God. You with me? We can have the assurance of our salvation in Christ Jesus, but know that we still need to repent of our sins and daily seek God's forgiveness and grace. There are so many things that pass us by that we do. We don't even think about it. But one thing I know about the Apostle Paul's life, 
is that he sought to live in a way of repentance, constantly seeking that, an expression of repentance in his daily life. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, here's what he wrote to Timothy in one of the two letters that he wrote to his young protege in the faith. He says this in 2 Timothy 2.21. Listen for the how he gets ready, how the, how the believer in Christ gets ready. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, meaning sin in our life, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. You see, when we repent of the sin, whatever it may be in our life, whether it's harboring anger, whether it's addiction to one thing or another, whether it's a sin that you struggle with, when we repent of that, God says it helps to prepare our bodily vessel, if you will, to be honorable, to be set apart, to be hagios, to be holy, used for good works. That's the way that Paul was living his life. That's the way Luke was living his life. Now, they weren't without sin. They fell short from time to time. Paul reminds us, for all fall short of the glory of God. There are none righteous. No, not one. So when we live our life in a repentant nature, it's one of the R's of living a life that is ready. But secondly, we need to live a life that is redeemed. Redeemed. What do I mean redeemed? You ever trade in a Coca-Cola bottle when you were a kid? You go down to the little nickel-dime store and the, 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 the little market on the corner, and you take that Coca-Cola bottle you collected in your little Red Rider wagon, and you show up at the store and you change in them bottles, and what do they give you? They give you a nickel. You know what they give you today? Nothing, right? You don't get nothing today. Talk about the good old days, right? But that's the idea of being redeemed. You trade in one thing and you get something so much more valuable back because what you were trading in wasn't nearly as valuable as what you were getting in return. Folks, when we live a life redeemed, we, can, we get the very thing that Paul summarizes this way in 2 Corinthians 5.16. For if any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. You see, when I'm redeemed, I've traded in my old life for something I couldn't even possibly obtain the value of in return. And that's what Jesus has given me when I live my life. Not only repentant, but when I'm redeemed. I've got a life that's worth more than all the treasure of this world. Jesus will remind us, what profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? You see, in Christ, we live redeemed. The psalmist would say this about living redeemed. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried out for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. I'll give you the third principle. Live reaching. Live reaching. What do I mean by living reaching? Do you know that God has called you and I to a specific thing, a specific role, a specific purpose, and given us a very specific task as the body of Christ? Now, don't you think for a minute, church, you at home watching, that the call to evangelize and to share the gospel with all the world is just for the preacher, is just for the missionary, is just for the evangelist, is just for the Sunday school teacher, is just for the deacon, or just that church guy. Folks, if you are a child of God, if you are in Christ, if you are repentant, if you have been redeemed, then we are called to live our life reaching. The simplest gospel found that summarizes all of it can be found in Mark 16, 15. Go therefore and proclaim the whole gospel to the world. There's the summary. Mark didn't write a whole lot. My shortest of all the gospels, 16 chapters, done, right? Matthew, though, Matthew wants to share a little more detail. Matthew says the same thing this way, according to Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you to the very end of the age. Same thing Mark just told us there. We are to live our life reaching others if we're ready for the gospel. You see, Paul, in his transition to going to Jerusalem, why was he going? He was going there to reach Rome, to reach an appeal before Caesar. To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you will go as he's in chains. See, we are to live our life reaching the gospel. Let me close by sharing, reaching others with the gospel. You see, some of us are going to go our whole life just like those salmon. We're going to, we're going to be swimming upstream. 
We're going to lay eggs. We're going to spawn. We're going to do whatever we thought that was the end of our life. And boom, we're going to turn red and we're going to die. And some grizzly bear is going to have us for lunch, right? We live our life just, just in the existence. But folks, that's not how we're called to live our life. We're to live a life that's worthy of dying for like the Apostle Paul. Why? Because Paul had something else in view. He wasn't just living for the temporal, what everyone else is doing. What he had in view was the cross. What he had in view was Jesus' promise of eternity. What he had in view was what Jesus had shared with him on the road to Damascus. I will show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. Now, that was Paul's burden. Paul had to carry that. A little secret. You can't carry anybody else's burden in life. Paul had to carry that one. This story, this understanding of this history of the Acts of the Apostles is a play out of Paul's burden that God gave to him. But I would argue he's given you and I a different burden. Each one of us different. Many gifts, many talents, but all different for the same purpose of keeping our eye on the cross of what Jesus would have us do. Not in the light of when we finish this life well and at the end of my days, what did I get to leave my kids? Will they think good of me in four generations? Folks, I don't even know my great-grandfather's name. Don't think I do. I mean, think about that. I don't even know three generations back his name, my own blood. Now, you may. Good for you. I don't. I don't know my grandmother. I don't know my great-grandmother's name. Now, sad, but the reality of it is this. I'm not living my life for the temporal. I'm living my life for the eternal. I know the name of Jesus. I know the name that's above every name. And that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And I look forward to hearing, Well done, my good and faithful servant. The very thing I think Paul kept his eyes on. He looked at the cross despite his suffering. He looked at the cross despite what was happening in hopes of hearing that word one day. Well done, my good and faithful servant. So I challenge you today. Are you living a life worth dying for? Paul did. Jesus did. He shed it for you.